0: Hello, everyone. My name is Lee, and I'm the host of the Viking Age podcast. As you might expect from the title, in my show, we dive deep into the history of the people who today we call the Vikings. We talk about who they were, where they traveled, and what activities they took part in. Most importantly, we explore why, starting around the year 800 they decided to set sail from home in Scandinavia and raid, trade, and settle their way into history. So if that sounds interesting to you, when you are done listening to this episode, you should search Viking Age Podcast anywhere that fine podcasts are sold. Or, rather, offered for free. For now, though, I hand you over to the man, the myth, the legend, Ryan. Skull,
1: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, episode 59, Olympian Zeus. The History of Ancient Greece podcast is relying on advertising as a way to keep the show free. If you could do me a favor and go to the following URL, podcastlistener.com backslash antiquity, and answer a few short questions, it would be really helpful for the show. Again, that's podcastlistener.com backslash antiquity. Thanks, and now let's start today's episode. In the Greek pantheon, Zeus is the almighty and supreme sky god. Homer calls him the father of the gods and humans, while Aeschylus points out that Zeus is the air, the earth, the sky, and the lot, as well as that he stands above everything. However, Zeus is not the creator of the cosmos. Other primal, violent, and revengeful powers preceded him, which he later dominated and destroyed in order to create a new cosmos, demonstrating the triumph of civilized values. Zeus rose to power after leading his brothers and sisters, the Olympians, along with some disaffected titans, against his father Cronos. This was a battle, not of angry gods against angry gods, but one of ideologies. The titans had been violent, furious, unsettled, and brutish, representative of nature and the raw. The Olympians, and in particular Zeus, rebelled against this disorder, and introduced a natural order that was more predictable and settled. The Olympian generation reigned in creation as best as their personalities would allow, thus providing an environment more hospitable for the appearance of humankind. When Zeus and his brothers, Hades and Poseidon, divided up the universe that they had won, Zeus received the heavens as his portion. This was fitting for the god who would serve as the king over the Olympian generation and who, in his most elemental nature, was a weather god. He is the sky itself, from which comes the rain and the seasons that affect the productivity of Mother Earth. The heavenly power of Zeus is needed in all aspects of nature, for the water and the streams, the acorns on the mighty oak trees, the lushness of nature, and so forth. And because of his involvement with the seasons and weather, and because of his role as guide and director of the universe, he also became the greatest defender of rules and norms. The rationale is that the god who brings the regular seasons and predictable patterns of the sky must also be interested in maintaining orderliness and justice in every corner of creation. Zeus protects the various organizations of men, whether it be the law courts, the governmental bodies, or the family unit. Zeus himself guarantees the structure on which society depends. As we discussed in episode 4, the Indo-European language can be traced back to a single origin that evolved into the numerous languages of western and near eastern cultures. Etymologically, there are many similarities between all Indo-European sky gods. Zeus is also the only deity in the Olympic pantheon whose name has such a transparent Indo-European etymology. The word Zeus comes from the Indo-European root deus, which means the shining one or the bright one. The oldest language we have, Vedic Sanskrit called their sky god, Dias Pitar. Dias obviously refers to Zeus. The letters D, Z, and T are all what linguistic scholars call dental consonants, because you say them by pressing your tongue against your upper teeth. So it's not a stretch to make this connection. Pitar becomes pater in Greek, meaning father. The Romans called their sky god Jupiter, which comes from U plus piter, meaning Zeus the father. In Gaelic, the god was called Du. Old Germanic people used to, the French word for god is du, dios in Spanish, and "duè" in oscan, an Italian language. In English, it is deity or divine. All of these refer to a sky god in its most basic nature. The earliest attested Greek forms of Zeus's name are diwe and diwo, written in the linear B-syllabic script. This proto-Zeus, though, probably bore only a partial resemblance to the Zeus of the classical period who took over the functions of a number of pre-Hellenic deities and also borrowed certain characteristics of Near Eastern deities in both myth and iconography. Like the Babylonian Marduk and Hittite Teshub, Zeus rises to become the supreme deity of the divine pantheon. Like the Phoenician Baal, he is a storm god who wields the thunderbolt. In many myths, Zeus used violence to get his way, sometimes even terrorizing humans. As the god of the sky, he had the power to hurl lightning bolts as his weapon of choice. Since lightning is quite powerful and sometimes deadly, the Greeks believed that a lightning strike meant that Zeus was angry. Furthermore, the most typical image of Zeus portrayed in Greek art is with his arm stretched out, holding a thunderbolt, and preparing to throw it. Besides the story of Zeus's birth and rise to power, which we discussed in detail in episode 2, the myths of the king of the gods mostly revolve around his many amorous affairs both with other divinities, as he had no problem having romantic rendezvous with his aunts, sisters, and the like, including the nymphs of the forests and streams, and with human beings of exceptional beauty. It might strike some of us as odd that the king of the gods had so many erotic encounters, but we must remember that as the sky god who sends the fertilizing rain, Zeus naturally would have a strong sexual component. The myths simply reflect the basic nature of the sky itself. But even more than that, the Greeks were interested in expressing something about the relationship between Zeus and his numerous lovers and offspring. Through his relationship with other divinities, for example, Zeus brought a degree of unity to the heavenly family, some of whom were originally minor divinities of small Greek tribes, and assumed many otherwise contrasting functions under his umbrella and control. Ultimately, children must obey their parents. And so, if most of the gods of the heavens are the children of Zeus, we can understand that their powers are subservient to his central authority. Furthermore, through his relationship with humans, Zeus introduced the divine and heroic seed into many families of ancient Greece. Or at least that is what those families would have wanted their fellow countrymen to believe. Because if they could claim that their ancestors descended from Zeus, they could more easily dispel charges that they had no right to the throne or to some other measure of prestige. Zeus, as the god who maintains order and justice in the universe, had a series of early divine affairs and relationships before he married Hera that produced children who created order in the world. Zeus' earliest encounter with another goddess was with a titaness named Metis, whose name means intelligence. After hearing a prophecy that Metis would give birth to a child who would become greater than he, Zeus swallowed her while she was already pregnant, unknown to Zeus. Eventually, Athena would be born from Zeus' head. She is the goddess of wisdom and reason. She presides over strategic warfare, therefore making war more orderly. Zeus then had an affair with another titaness, named Themis, the goddess of law and moral order. She gave birth to the three Hori, whose name literally means hours, and in the broad sense, stand for the passage of time and cycles and seasons. The names of the Hori are eunomia, or order, dike, or justice, and Eirene or peace. They controlled the growth of plants through the seasons and they also maintained the stability of society. Zeus and Themis also produced the three mori, or fates. There will be more on them shortly. Next, Zeus made it with Eurynome, the daughter of Oceanus, and produced the three graces, Euphrosyne, Thalia, and Aglaea. They are the symbols of happiness and loveliness that attract male to female. Attraction is the most basic principle of the universe. Men are drawn to women because of their loveliness, and thus perpetuate the cycle of life, and so they are the principles of attraction that are needed to make the universe work properly. Zeus also had a brief affair with his sister Demeter, the goddess who watches over the growth of grains and other crops. She is the power of growth itself in the plants. Together they produce Persephone, and as we shall see in a future episode, mother and daughter represent the cycles of birth, growth, death, and rebirth, Found in nature and is the reason for the change between winter and summer. With the Titaness Nemosine, whose name means memory, Zeus spent nine consecutive nights, with the result being that she produced the nine Muses, who oversaw the arts in all of its forms. This is not surprising since the Greeks believe that memory is the fundamental requirement for the production of arts. The nine are Calliope, or epic poetry, Cleo, or history, Euterpe, or music, song, and lyric poetry. Erato or Love Poetry, Melpomene, or Tragedy, Polyhymnia, or Hymns, Terpsichore, or Dance, Thalia, or Comedy, and Urania, or Astronomy. With the Titaness Leto, Zeus bore Apollo and Artemis. Apollo's functions are many, but basically he serves as the chief god of the arts, and is often accompanied by the nine muses. Apollo also drives the chariot of the sun across the sky, in a regular fashion while Artemis leads the moon, and so these roles both contain order and harmony. Artemis also presides over transitions into and out of childhood. In regards to his affairs with other divinities, one overarching principle stands behind them all. Zeus represents the fulfillment or triumph of order over disorder. His sovereignty over the universe and the way that he exercises his supreme power symbolizes the fact that the universe runs on established principles and on a grand design. The Greeks recognize that, although the world in which they lived is varied and complex, it is also predictable and works according to certain universal patterns. All the myths of the individual affairs with other divinities show Zeus coupling with goddesses who preside over these universal patterns and producing children who exhibit further concern for order. On the other hand, with his wife Hera, Zeus created three children, Hebe, Ares, and Elethea, who introduced unpredictability and chaos into the universe. Hebe, meaning the bloom of youth, was the cupbearer of the gods on Mount Olympus during banquets, pouring them ambrosia. But when Zeus became interested in a young Trojan boy named Ganymede, he decided to make him his new cupbearer. He is often shown holding a rooster in his hand, representing amorous sexual feelings of love. This also represents the fact that youth eventually fades away and can be replaced by someone else who has it. Ares is the god of war although his tactics are much more chaotic than the strategic Athena. He is wild and savage, and enjoys the noisy confusion of the battlefield. He appears when the battle line breaks down and men are fighting amidst chaos and slaughter. Finally, Elethea watches over childbirth, which originally was Hera's responsibility, and she needed to be present to complete the birthing process. The Greeks did not look upon childbirth well, because it is a violent, chaotic time. In his Moralia, Plutarch says that nothing is as imperfect, needy, naked, shapeless, and soiled as a human being at the moment of birth, all covered with blood and full of filth. It looks more like a slaughtered creature than a newborn child. Childbirth only happens with much pain, screaming, blood, and of course the constant threat of death. We have already examined quite a few of Zeus's erotic encounters with mortal women in great detail in previous episodes. But as a quick recap, he made it with Semele, Maia, and Alcmene as a human male to produce Dionysus, Hermes, and Heracles respectively, with Europa as a bull to produce Minos, Sarpedon, and Radamanthus, with Io as a dark cloud to produce Apophis, with Danae as golden rain to produce Perseus, and with Leda as a swan to produce Helen and Pollux. There are many many more that we could discuss, because well, Zeus lusted after anything and everything really, but these are just the main ones. Many myths render Hera as being jealous of his amorous conquests and as a consistent enemy of her husband's lovers and their children by him. For a time, a nymph named Echo had the job of distracting Hera while he committed his affairs by talking to her incessantly. I bet Zeus thought he was so smart too. Well, Hera eventually discovered the deception, like she always does, and she cursed Echo to only being able to repeat the words of others. Unfortunately, this was one of her more milder acts of revenge against Zeus' conspirators. The three mori, or fates, in Greek can also mean destiny, allotments, or portions of food, inheritance, and material possessions. They decide everything about a person's life before they are even born, such as social status, honor, and limitations. The Greeks saw them as terrifying and began to relate them with death itself, since they believed that death and life were out of their own control. For example, one can be dealt a sudden, unexpected blow on the battlefield. Three women represent the fates. Clotho spins the thread of life, Lachesis measures the length that represents each person's lifespan, and Atropos wields the scissors and cuts it when it is one's time to die. Besides being his daughters, the relationship between Zeus and the fates isn't clear, though. Homer says that everything happens according to the will of Zeus. Other poets say that the gods search out the will of the fates and then execute it. At the very least, Zeus makes sure whatever the fates say will happen, happens, defending it against the whims of the other gods, who couldn't care less about the consequences of their actions. For example, the fate said that Troy would fall in the Trojan War, and even though the gods fought on both sides and tried to win, Zeus made sure that it ultimately happened. Yet he was able to decide the details of that fall himself. The story of Zeus and the two jars is told in Homer's Iliad. In this scene, Achilles is talking to King Priam of Troy, after he has made his way into Achilles' tent during the night with the help of the god Hermes, who is skilled at getting people through difficult passageways. Achilles is eating supper and has his feet propped up on the dead body of Priam's son, Hector, who he had previously killed, and even humiliated his body by attaching it to his chariot and dragging it on the ground around the walls of Troy. And so Priam brings ransom money into the Greek camp and begs Achilles to give him the body of his son back. Achilles then goes on to tell the story of the two pithoi, or jars, that Zeus used when humans are created. He says that they are in the great hall on Mount Olympus, on either side of Zeus' throne. One pythos contains all of the miseries and misfortunes of humans, and the other contains all of the blessings that one could possibly experience in life. Achilles says that as a person is being born, Zeus grabs a handful of each and puts them into the human, so that in life we have a mixture of blessings and miseries. Sometimes, however, Zeus reaches into only the cursed jar, making that unlucky human an outcast. Achilles also says that if someone has only good things happen to him in the beginning of his life, then the rest of his life will be filled with the sorrows that he was allotted, because no man receives only from the jar of blessings. Achilles said that this was the case with his father Peleus, who married the goddess Thetis and was king of the Myrmidons. He found out that his son wasn't going to live long, and his wife left him, so he then had nothing but sorrows for the rest of his life. Achilles then says to Priam that so far, he has experienced only blessings, but life doesn't work that way, so now it's time for his miseries. Priam saw his son killed, and his kingdom will be stripped, and there's nothing that he can do about it. Since this story is found in Homer, it shows a metaphor for the divine will of Zeus and fate, but like I said before, Zeus and his role with fate is a very complicated relationship. Early archaic Zeus was a rain-making, agricultural deity sometimes paired with Gaia or Demeter, and worshipped at altars constructed on mountain peaks. Disturbing myths of child sacrifice are elements found in several of these early cults. These can be explained as important Near Eastern themes, or as the mythic expression of initiation practices through which symbolic death led to rebirth and a new stage of life. As the deity of the sky, and therefore of the rain, Zeus' natural home was atop a mountainous peak where clouds are seen to gather. Foreshadowing a storm or a rain shower. This, of course, was Mount Olympus, the tallest mountain in Greece at about 10,000 feet, or 3,000 meters. So naturally, the Greeks thought that Zeus, along with the other gods, lived up there, hence why they called them the Olympians. From this, we often see for Zeus the Greek epithets of Nephiligerata, meaning the cloud gatherer, Ombrios, meaning of the rain or the rain sender, and Keranos, meaning thunderer. Zeus was also worshipped on other mountain summits. In particular, in the 8th and 7th centuries BC, Attica saw a trend for the worship of Zeus on several local peaks. Zeus Umbrios had an altar on Mount Hymetus, where local farmers came to make offerings for rain. An excavated site at the summit of Hymetus revealed a hoard of cups and jugs inscribed to Zeus from the period when writing was first introduced to the area. This cult site, which dates back to the 10th century BC, is one of the earliest attested in Attica. Similarly, other early sanctuaries of Zeus existed on Mount Parnas and other Attic peaks, but all declined in popularity during the classical period. However, Zeus was not only associated with the sky. Other associations portray him as the god who provides oak trees, which are tall, strong structures that stretch upwards towards the sky and give acorns like a gift. In fact, oak trees often were the symbol of the main god of any given culture. One of his most famous sanctuaries was at Dodona on the northwestern shore of Greece, in the region of Epirus, which had very remote access from the island of Corsaira, or modern Corfu. There was an oracle of Zeus there, in which his cult title was Naos, or the Flowing, probably from the abundant springs in the area. In the middle of the temple, there was a special room where an oak tree was planted that grew through an open roof. It was said that there, the unwashed and barefoot priests of Zeus, called the Seloi, took visitors for prophecy, and the priest slept on the ground under the oak tree and interpreted his message from the rustling of the tree's leaves. They then wrote down the message on oak leaves and gave it to the visitors as a response. These early prophets apparently lived an ascetic life, designed to preserve and increase their contact with the earth, which was often viewed as a source of oracular knowledge. Furthermore, in the Odyssey... Odysseus went to Dodona to get Zeus's advice from the god's high-leafed oak tree. In some descriptions of the oracle, an oak tree sacred to Zeus speaks with a human voice. Other accounts tell of messages from doves perched on the tree's branches, or from priestesses, called pelades, or doves, who according to Herodotus, had replaced the male priests. Furthermore, Zeus shared a sanctuary there with Dione, which means the wife of the sky. Her status as a titaness suggests that she may have been a powerful pre-Greek deity there, and perhaps the original occupant of the oracle. Evidence from excavations, however, shows that by the classical period, one consulted Zeus and Dione by writing a question on a ribbon-shaped lead tablet and handing it to the priestess. Varying somewhat with the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, most questions asked to the prophets of Zeus and Dione at Dodona dealt with personal matters, such as whether to undertake a voyage or whether to marry. Often, the oracle advised people on which gods they should sacrifice to in order to ensure health, the birth of children, or prosperity. At Mount Lucaon, the tallest peak in rustic Arcadia, Zeus was worshipped as Zeus Lukeus. The inhabitants of this remote area were widely considered backwards and primitive, and they preserved a number of customs and rituals that seemed strange to other Greeks. Regardless, Mount Lucaon was an important focus of ethnic unity for the Arcadians. 5th century BC coins from Arcadia display the image of Lukean Zeus, and their annual festival of Zeus, known as the Lukea, included athletic competitions and attracted participants from other districts. These were taken very seriously by the Arcadians. In fact, Xenophon reports that the 4,000 Arcadian mercenaries who served the Persian general Cyrus during the so-called March of the 10,000 stopped their march in order to celebrate the Lucan Games, even though they were far away from home. On the mountain, there was a sacred enclosure of Zeus where nobody would enter, as it was said that anyone who did would cast no shadow and would die within the year. During times of prolonged drought, the priest of Zeus made a sacrifice and stirred the waters of the nearby Hagnos Spring with an oak branch in order to bring rain. But the most mysterious activity of the cult took place on the summit of the mountain. At the very top, archaeologists found a large mound of ashes and blackened soil that contained knives, small tripods, and burnt animal bones while the sanctuary, 20 meters below, included two 5th century B.C. Doric columns topped by gilded eagles. Here, Zeus was viewed as a god who was angry at the sins of mankind and needed to be propitiated. A secret nocturnal sacrifice was held during which participants ate portions of mystery meat from a tripod kettle reputed to contain not only entrails of animals, but also a piece taken from a human victim. According to Plato, quote, he who tastes of the human entrails, minced up with those of other victims, inevitably becomes a wolf, or leucos, Tradition held that every nine years, a priest traveled to the top of Mount Lucaon to perform mysterious sacrifices, including a sacrifice of a human being, which was very unusual for Greek religion. Once he had sacrificed the individual, all of the sins committed by the people of his city were transferred to him, because he had committed the worst sin, murder. Then, the priest was banished from the city because he supposedly ate of the human flesh, which caused him to take on the shape of a wolf, and so he wandered in the wilderness for nine years. In the tenth year, if during his time as a wolf, he abstained from eating human flesh again, he would transform back into a human with the murder atoned for, at which point the cycle started again as another priest performed vicarious atonement, otherwise he would remain a wolf forever. So what are we to make of this ancient story of werewolf transformation, and could it be true that people were regularly sacrificed to Zeus Lukeos? The latter possibility seems unlikely, considering that no human remains have been found in the excavation of the site, and that human sacrifice seems to have been far more common in Greek myths and symbolic rites than in actual practice. On the other hand, the participants in the ritual may well have believed that the pot contained forbidden meat. As for the werewolves, It has been suggested that the ritual originally served as a rite of passage, through which youths entering adolescence, girls were apparently excluded, began a period of rugged training as warriors by hunting and living in the wild as wolves. After this probationary period, the young men would be eligible to marry and enjoy other rites of full manhood. In another story, Zeus came down to Arcadia and was hosted by a man named Luccaon, who the Arcadians believed was their ancestral king. Lukeion, though, incurred the wrath of Zeus, because he served him a feast that contained the flesh of a slaughtered human boy. In some accounts, it was his own grandson. Disgusted, Zeus turned him into a wolf. And so the reenactment of the meal may have been an annual reminder of when the savage ancestor of the Arcadians failed to distinguish properly between human and animal, and offended the gods with a perverted sacrifice. The descendants of Lucayon were fated to suffer his punishment, but this special burden of identity with the wolf also set them apart from other Greeks. In spite of the Arcadians' belief in the great antiquity of this custom, the oldest artifacts in the sanctuary are no earlier than the 7th century BC though. Human sacrifice is associated with another of Zeus's cults. When King Athamas of Thessaly attempted to sacrifice his son Phrixus and his daughter Helle to Zeus Laphistius, or the Devourer, in order to stop a drought, either Zeus himself or the children's mother, Nephili, meaning cloud, arranged their escape on a flying golden ram. Helle, though, fell off the ram into a body of water that would later take her name, the Hellespont, but Phrixus made it all the way to Colchis, where the ram became the source of the famous golden fleece. Here again, we see the juxtaposition of drought, sacrifice to Zeus, and the skin of a sheep that is thought to possess special powers or attributes. A related myth declared that Athamas himself was to be killed as a scapegoat to purify the land, but was rescued in the nick of time, just as Phrixus had been. According to Herodotus, the descendants of Athamas in Thessaly were liable to be sacrificed to Zeus Lephistius if they set foot in the town hall, which for some reason they were constrained to do. There are problems with the text in this passage. Herodotus himself seems convinced that such sacrifices took place, but it is also possible that the ritual involved an elaborate rescue, reflecting the mythic rescues of Phrixus and Athamis, or that a ram was substituted for the human victim. Rather surprisingly, in view of his origins as a sky god, many cults of Zeus are Chthonian or semi-Chthonian in character. One of the most widespread was that of Zeus Melikios, meaning the mild. Like many Chthonian gods, Melikios bore a euphemistic name. In truth, though, he could be both angry and kindly, a deity who required regular appeasement in order to keep the beneficial side of his personality to the fore. By calling him mild or kindly, his worshippers expressed their hopes rather than their fears. Because they governed the fruitlessness of the earth, Chthonian deities had the power to be givers of good things, if properly propitiated. Xenophon in his Anabasis describes how he once fell short of money while working as a mercenary commander in Asia Minor. A seer told him that his financial troubles were due to his failure to sacrifice to Zeus Malikios. Xenophon admitted that, although he had regularly sacrificed when living at home, he had not done so since leaving Greece. The next day, he sacrificed two pigs and burned them whole for the god, and his piety was immediately rewarded with the return of a horse that he had been forced to sell. Although personal or family offerings to Zeus Melikios were common throughout the Greek world, in Athens there was an important public festival for this particular rendition of Zeus called the Deacia. In early spring, people gathered just outside the city at the banks of the river Elysses for the rites, which involved bloodless offerings of agricultural produce and pastries shaped like animals. For the average citizen, the festival was a time to gather with family members and to enjoy a fairground-like atmosphere. In Aristophanes' clouds, Strepsiades recalls how he bought a toy cart for his young son on this occasion. Yet Zeus Melichius was also a somber deity. On votive reliefs, he usually appears not in human form, but as a huge coiling snake, rearing up to meet his worshippers. In Greek art, the snake as a companion or attribute often indicates that the deity or hero in question belongs to the underworld. Such theriomorphic depictions, in which the gods took an animal form, as opposed to anthropomorphic, or the form of a human, were unusual among ancient Greek imagery. Zeus Melichius was recognized in the Pompeia, or procession, another Athenian festival that took place while the fields were being plowed and the crops sowed. At this crucial time, it was important to be sure that the land was purified and free from evil influences, such as those that were introduced by the shedding of a kinsman's blood. Therefore, a ram was sacrificed, and its fleece, known as the Dioscodion, or fleece of Zeus, was carried in procession, We have already seen that the fleeces of ram sacrificed to Zeus carried special powers, and their purifying function was one of the most important. As an upholder of social norms, Zeus presided over the purification rituals conducted when a homicide took place. Anyone who had committed murder, even accidentally, could not participate in family, religious, or political life until they were purified. So they turned for help to householders in neighboring communities or to sanctuaries, where they were protected by divine law from the vengeance of angry relatives. The role of Zeus in purifications is illustrated in one of the oldest extant sacral laws, a mid-5th century BC inscription from Selenus in Sicily, dealing with the procedures to be followed by a man who has killed and wishes to be purified against the avenging spirit. The killer is to announce his intentions, provide a meal for the hostile spirit, and sacrifice a piglet to Zeus Malekios at his own expense. From other sources, we know that in such rituals, the piglet's blood was allowed to flow over the killer, since the participants believed that only sacrificial blood could wash away the metaphoric blood of murder. A person in need of this purification was known as a Hecetus, or the one who comes, but the angry ghost of his victim was similarly a visitant, called a Hecassius. And so Zeus Hecassius, or the god of the ones who come, protected suppliants and guests from violence, but could himself be a supernatural avenger. He and Zeus Melikios are invoked in rock-cut inscriptions made by family or clan groups in Thera, Kos, and Cyrene. His importance to the extended family arises from the belief that the religious impurity of one member affected the entire group. Other manifestations of Zeus as a Chthonian deity were common in domestic and public cult. Zeus Philios, or the friendly, was similar to Melechios, but was more concerned with banqueting and friendship, and his cult was of a more later origin. He is shown on a 4th century BC vote of relief in a pose usually reserved for heroes, reclining at a banquet and accompanied by his consort, Tyche Agathe, or good luck. Zeus Philios, though, also can be depicted as a huge snake. Because of his position as head of the divine family of Mount Olympus, Zeus was also the archetype of the patriarchal father. In myth, Zeus's many amorous alliances with mortal women produced the heroes who gave rise to aristocratic lineages, and so he was worshipped as Zeus Petrus, or the ancestor, specifically by the Dorians, who traced their lineage to his son Heracles, and more generally as a god of familial bonds. At Athens, Zeus Fratrios and Athena Fratria presided over the enrollment of boys into the fratries, or brotherhoods, that guaranteed their status as legitimate offspring of citizens. Shrines of individual fratries sometimes had altars dedicated to the pair, but most widespread of all were Zeus's many domestic cults. Zeus Herchaos, or of the courtyard, received sacrifices on behalf of the household at an open air altar. An anecdote from Herodotus illustrates the role that Zeus played as the guarantor of the male line. When confronted by his enemies with claims that he was illegitimate, the Spartan king Demaratus sacrificed to Zeus and brought his mother a portion of the entrails. Placing them in her hand, he beseeched her in the name of Zeus Herceus to tell him the truth about his parentage, and she complied. Zeus Hercaeus is attested as early as Homer, who mentions that Odysseus and his father sacrificed to the god outside their ancestral home. Zeus's importance to fathers may also explain the unusual votive offerings uncovered in the hilltop sanctuary of Messapi near Sparta. The sanctuary of Zeus Messapius contained weapons, armor, and athletic gear, but these were far outnumbered by crude, handmade clay statuettes of males with huge erect phalloi. The site was frequented mostly by men, who may have sought Zeus' aid in becoming fathers. Zeus Stesius, or of the possessions, was a humbler deity. In Athens, it was customary for the head of the household to decorate a two-handled jar with wool around its handles, and to empty into the jar a mixture of pure water, olive oil, and various fruits and grains, as a symbolical representation of ambrosia. The finished jar stood in the storeroom as a symbol of Zeus Stesius and acted as a charm to increase the household goods. Since this ritual has many points of contact with funerary customs, it suggests a relationship to domestic ancestor cults. Though he had public altars in some cities, Zeus Stesios was primarily an intimate family god. The order Isaias tells of an Athenian who admitted only family members to the sacrifice for this god, though his practice was not necessarily universal. Like the Chthonic variants of Zeus that we have discussed, Zeus Stesius could also be represented as a snake. Later, Zeus was drawn from his rural sanctuaries into the city center, where he presided in a general way over the realm of politics, yet rarely did he become the patron deity of an individual city. Instead, he was acknowledged as the most powerful of the Olympians through the establishment and growth of his pan-Hellenic sanctuaries at Olympia, Nemea, and Dodona. His cults typically reinforced traditional sources of authority and standards of behavior, whether in the family, the kinship group, or the city. The Greeks collectively did not neglect to honor the king of the gods in grandiose style, and the way in which they did this was through festive performances and athletic contests. In fact, two of the four pan-Hellenic festivals were dedicated to him, the Olympic and Nemean games. The younger of the two was that at Nemea, a sanctuary that was controlled by Argos. The founding myth of the festival linked the cult of Zeus with that of Opheltes, the infant son of the Nemean king Lycurgus and Queen Eurydice. He was strangled by a serpent and funeral games were held in his honor. The recently excavated hero shrine of Opheltes consisted of a long, mounded embankment containing around 40 drinking vessels left as foundation deposits on the broad end of the embankment, from which spectators could view the stadium, was a pentagonal wall enclosing at least two stone altars and a fire pit with the remains of sacrifices. The pottery from the shrine dates no earlier than the early 6th century BC, when the Nemean Games were established, though a few scraps and shards suggest cult activity at Nemea as early as the 8th century BC. The archaic Temple of Zeus was first built in the 6th century BC, but was destroyed by a fire during the late 5th century BC, probably as a result of warfare, judging from the remains of weapons in the burnt layer of soil. As early as the 10th century BC, Olympia was a meeting place where local chieftains displayed their wealth by dedicating valuable bronze sculptures and tripods to Zeus. The traditional date for the founding of the games themselves is 776 BC, and during the 8th century BC, Olympia gradually developed into the most elaborate and important cult site of Zeus, until it eventually became his chief place of Panhellenic worship. In place of local Peloponnesian chiefs, it now became the arena for rivalries between developing city-states. For more information on the Olympic Games, check out episode 21. Anyways, the center of Zeus's sanctuary at Olympia was a walled precinct called the Altis or sacred grove, where a primitive altar of Zeus stood. It was a great canonical pile of molded sacrificial ashes. Every four years, the high point of the festival was a sacrifice of a hundred cattle, whose thighs were burned on the altar by Olympic victors. Zeus's altar was also the seat of an oracle. At its summit, a mantis, or prophet, drawn from the Clytiide or Iamid families of Elis, who controlled the sanctuary, would observe and interpret the burn patterns of the offerings for those consulting the god. An early structure near Zeus's altar at Olympia was the Pelopion, or the tomb of Pelops, an ancestral hero who gave his name to the Peloponnese, and who supposedly founded the Olympic Games, at least according to one mythical tradition. This tomb consisted of a mound, upon which stood a polygonal enclosure wall, and it was probably the model for the similar hero shrine of Opheltes at Nemea. At every festival, the hero received a black ram, whose blood flowed into a pit in the Pelopion, as well as preliminary offerings whenever a sacrifice was made to Zeus. There has been vigorous debate over the age of Pelop's cult. Though early Bronze Age walls were found beneath the Pelopion, they may be completely unrelated to the archaic cults, and the stratigraphy is not well enough preserved to draw conclusions about continuity. On the other hand, the mound on which the Pelopion sat was itself prehistoric, and the fact that this site was chosen shows a desire on the part of the sanctuary's founders to forge links to the heroic past. Over the centuries, dozens of secondary and minor deities became attached to the sanctuary as well. Among the most important of those were Hera, whose temple dated to the 7th century BC, Cronos on the hill of Cronos, Rhea in the Matroon, and Heracles, who in another tradition was also credited with founding the games. Once a month, the Eleans, inhabitants of the surrounding district, made offerings at the roughly 70 lesser altars on the site. In the time of Pausanias, these included at least eight altars of Zeus in various aspects, including Zeus Catharsios or of purification, Katabates, or of descending lightning, Chthonius, or of the underworld, and Hypsistus, or of the highest. As we have seen, Zeus's cults seldom required a temple or an image, and the first temple on the site was that of Hera. None was supplied for Zeus until the 5th century BC, when the Eleans defeated the Passatans, their rivals for control of the sanctuary, and began a building program with the spoils. Completed before 457 BC, the Doric temple was furnished with a colossal gold, silver, and ivory statue of Zeus, which became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The god was depicted in a restful pose that departed from the standard archaic representations of him, striding forward with a raised thunderbolt, and drew instead on Homer's description of a majestic Zeus enthroned on Mount Olympus. Seated on an elaborately ornamented, gem-encrusted throne, he held the goddess Nike, or Victory, in his raised right hand, in his left hand, grasped a staff, upon which perched an eagle. It was said that when the sculptor Phidias completed the statue, he prayed to Zeus for him to make a sign if the work pleased him, and at that moment a flash of lightning immediately appeared. Few visitors to the temple failed to be moved with religious awe at the sight of the image, which measured about 13 meters in height, or 50 feet, and could be viewed from a second-floor gallery. But in spite of its huge size, viewers received the impression of a calm and peaceful deity. According to quote, "...whoever is deeply burdened with pain in his soul... Having borne much misfortune and grief in his life, and never being able to attain sweet sleep, even this man, I believe, standing before this image, would forget all the terrible and harsh things which one must suffer in human life. End quote. For more information on the temple of Zeus at Olympia and this famous cult statue, check out episode 58. In Greek literature, Zeus is a righteous god who punishes the arrogant and the wicked. And so many cults of Zeus had a moral dimension, and focused on enforcing behavior that was expected by society. Among the most revered of traditional beliefs was the idea that one was prohibited from harming strangers, guests, beggars, and suppliants, all of whom fell under the protection of Zeus. Instead, one ought to respect guests and strangers and give aid to beggars and suppliants. Anyone who refused these obligations could expect punishment from Zeus. One of his most important epithets is Ixenios meaning guest or host, and describes his role as a protector of travelers and the rules that hosts must follow. As we have already mentioned, the epithet Achesios describes Zeus's role as protector of suppliants, or people who ask favors. There is the famous incident in which Thetis, the mother of Achilles, supplicated Zeus on behalf of her son for him to provide Achilles with new armor after his was lost, after Patrocles, who was wearing Achilles armor, was killed by Hector and stripped of it. The protocol was that the suppliant made themselves inferior by bowing before the superior, clasping his knee with one hand and his chin with the other, and then pleaded their case. This was a very vulnerable position. However, although no one was allowed to harm a suppliant, they did not have to say yes to the favor. Likewise, the epithet Horkios describes Zeus's role in ensuring the validity of oaths. For example, in front of the statue of Zeus Horchios at Olympia, athletes and their fathers at the Olympic Games had to swear a solemn oath that the participants had trained for at least six months and would obey all the rules during the games. Judges also had to swear to judge fairly. A boar was sacrificed and they all slapped their hand on its carcass while making the oath. A bronze inscription in front of the statue told of the divine punishment in store for oath breakers all cheaters were punished with statues of themselves being erected of Zeus at the entrance at their expense, and with their name, violation, and the town that they came from inscribed upon it. This was considered great humiliation, and there are still some bases found there today. As the sovereign and father of the gods, Zeus presided over normative civic, social, and family relationships. He endorsed the power of early chieftains and kings, but in the later age of the Greek polis, Zeus was the upholder of civic authority. Zeus Polius, or of the city, was worshipped in many Greek cities, often with Athena Polius, the citadel goddess, as his partner. The Athenians preserved an ancient and curious ritual for this god, carried out on the Acropolis at his annual festival, the Dipolea. Already considered old-fashioned by the classical period, the Dipoleia ritually linked Zeus's archaic role as an agricultural deity with his civic function as a guarantor of justice. According to Pausanias, They put barley mixed with wheat on the altar of Zeus and leave no guard there. The ox that they have ready for the sacrifice goes to the altar and touches the grains. They call one of the priests the ox or Bufonos. After striking the ox, he drops the axe and flees, for this is the custom, and refusing to recognize the man who did the deed, they put the axe on trial. The ritual has received attention for its special focus on the ox. Many sacrifices include oxen, but only this one had a special priest known as the ox slayer, and the alternative name of the festival was the ox slain or Bufonia. This indicates that the festival was concerned with the value of the ox as a domesticated animal. The ritual expresses tension between the ox's value as a meat animal and the need to keep oxen alive as draft animals, vital for agriculture. Hence, the man who kills the ox commits a crime, but also reenacts the first sacrifice in the pleasurable sacrificial meal of meat. The location of the altar on the Acropolis and the priest's use of a double-edged sacrificial axe called Pelicus here, well-known from Bronze Age Aegean iconography, suggests that this ritual has roots in Mycenaean religion. Under other titles associated with civic functions, such as Buleos, or of the council, and Agorios, or of the city center, Zeus preserved order and oversaw the political and legal systems of the Greek polis. He is also associated with victory in battle, after which soldiers honored Zeus Tropeus, or of the rout, by setting up an effigy in the form of a pole with armor placed on it, the forerunner of a trophy. The first literary depiction of this practice occurs in Sophocles' Antigone, where the chorus describes how six of the seven against Thebes left behind their bronze armor for Zeus Tropeus. Such images were normally temporary, but Zeus Tropeus appropriately possessed a sanctuary of his own in warlike Sparta. Cults of Zeus Eleutherios, or of freedom, were instituted on special occasions when the Greeks believed that they had experienced divine deliverance from tyranny. After the Battle of Plataea in 479 BC, an altar was built for Zeus Eleutherios to commemorate the united defense of Greece against the invading Persians. The poet Simonides wrote an epigram to be inscribed on the altar, including the words, Having driven out the Persians, they set up the altar of Zeus Eleutherios, a free, or Eleutheron, ornament for Hellas. The commemorative games instituted at this time, which included a race of fully armed men around the altar, were still observed for hundreds of years later. An existing altar in the Athenian agora, most likely belonging to Zeus Soter, or the Savior, was rebuilt around 430 BC together with a stoa, which formed a new sanctuary of Zeus Eleutherios Soter. The timing of the construction suggests that the power of Zeus was now being invoked against the invading Spartans. In Sicily, the cult of Zeus Eleutherios was first established when the tyrant Thrasybulus was overthrown in 466 BC. The city of Syracuse erected a colossal statue of Zeus, and as at Plataea, they found it games. The cult of Zeus Soter was more geographically widespread than Zeus Eleutherios, and it similarly marked occasions when disaster was averted or battles won. Zeus Soter was also invoked broadly as a god who saved individuals in times of trouble. At his temple in the Piraeus, which was shared with Athenian Soterra, the feminine word form of Soter, sailors made offerings upon returning home from dangerous journeys, and the Phoebes, or young warriors in training, rode trireme races in his honor at an annual festival, the De Soteria. Finally, Zeus Soter was an important god of the household, with other deities such as Hygieia, or health, and Agathos Daemon, or the good god, he traditionally received the third libation at Symposia. The first libation was poured to all of the Olympian gods collectively, who represent the cosmos, the second to the heroes, who stand for the city, and the third specifically to Zeus Soter, the patron of the home and family. In his suppliants in Orestia, Aeschylus alludes several times to Zeus Soter as the deity who upholds the authority of the male head of the household and the physical integrity of the home itself, which were felt to be interdependent. Zeus was also worshipped on Crete, where he was supposedly hidden from his father Cronos and reared when he was a baby in a cave on Mount Dictae. Ancient and modern scholars alike, though, differ on the exact location of this peak. The excavation of a sanctuary at Palakastro found an inscribed hymn that begins quote, Io, greatest youth, welcome, son of Cronos, all powerful brightness, here now present, leading the gods, come for the new year to dictate, and rejoice in his song. End quote. The hymn was inscribed at a later date, but its content and style show that it goes back to at least the classical period. Supposedly, there was a tomb there in which Zeus died every year in the winter and did not come out of the cave until summertime. Dictaean Zeus appears to be primarily a god of vegetative and procreative energies, whose life followed the patterns of the seasons, as a god of the weather and yearly cycle who was born anew every year. The excavations also brought to light rich votive offerings, showing that the sanctuary was most prosperous from the 7th to 5th centuries BC. Mount Dicte, then, is identified by some as the peak overlooking Palacastro, shown today as Mount Pesophis in eastern Crete. Another famous cult site of Zeus was the cave below the summit of Mount Ida in central Crete, which served as a sanctuary for over a thousand years. The excavation of it has found many layers of burnt sacrificial offerings, and an unusually rich hoard of votive objects, including bronze and gold items. Some of the objects from the Idian cave, including a famous group of bronze shields with orientalizing decorations, date to the 8th or 7th centuries BC. The cult here, as at Dicte, was concerned with the youthful Zeus and his band of protective warriors, the Coretes, who clashed their shields to conceal the infant's cries from his hostile father. Idean Zeus was a mysterious god, into whose rites young men were initiated on the model of the Coretes, according to a fragment of Euripides' play The Cretans. The chorus of this play tells how the gods' worshippers led a life of purity, wearing only white clothing and abstaining from all meat, except for the raw flesh of bulls, sacrificed on behalf of Zeus. The celebrations are described as being ecstatic and involve torchlight processions over the mountaintop. There is a story that the philosopher and mathematician Pythagoras was initiated into this cult. After strenuous preparations, he descended into the cave for 27 days and supposedly viewed the tomb of Zeus. This concept of a tomb for Zeus would have seemed reasonable to Egyptians or Near Easterners, who were familiar with dying gods, but it was alien to the Greeks, who never questioned that the gods were immortal beings. In fact, the poet Callimachus, commenting on the tomb in his hymn to Zeus, concluded that Cretans always lie. There is also the so-called philosophical Zeus that began to arise when many people began to question polytheistic religions during the Hellenistic period. It was the tendency amongst many Hellenistic philosophers to think monotheistically, and so they began to think of Zeus as the one true god. The Stoics thought of the world as a combination of matter and Zeus. This wasn't the Zeus of myth, but a soul that governed everything. Cleonthes, in the 3rd century BC, wrote a hymn to Zeus and identified him with nature, reason, providence, fate, and law. Just as our soul and mind govern the body, Zeus abstractly governs the world we live in. The other Olympians and gods were merely aspects of Zeus's character. These ancient thinkers connected Zeus to the root zo incorrectly, meaning nature or life, and from which we get the term zoology. They essentially thought of Zeus as mother nature and the giver of life. He also is the logos, meaning word, reason, or rational principle. Zeus uses his word, or reason, to order the universe harmoniously, and nothing happens outside of his will, not even evil. Christianity picked up on this too. In the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, or logos. Lastly, Zeus is also the nomos, meaning law. He is the standard by which we measure all actions. For the Stoics, right and wrong was seen through the observation of natural process, meaning Zeus in action. And so natural law is merely the idea that people derive laws from a truth that is continually seen in nature. So there is Zeus, in all of his glory, as the mighty patriarch who ruled over Mount Olympus. On the next episode, we turn our attention to Zeus's brother, Hades, whose domain was not the sky, but a place as far away from the earth as was Mount Olympus. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, episode 60, The Underworld.